Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Lead poisoning is thought to cause 1% of the global burden of disease. This means that 1% of every health problem that people have is a result of lead. Did you eat paint chips as a kid? Lead is chemical element number 82 on the periodic table. It's a heavy metal. It's quite dense, but also soft and malleable. Because of its low melting point and the fact that its ores tend to be present with silver means that lead has been utilized by ancient civilizations for almost 10,000 years. Lead pellets have been found in Mesopotamia as early as 6,500 BC. But lead is also toxic. It's got no known physiological role in humans, and it causes significant disease. Today on Full Scope, we're going to talk about lead poisoning. We're going to talk about who's at risk for lead poisoning, namely children and occupational workers. We're going to talk about how to diagnose lead poisoning, both clinically and with laboratories. We're going to discuss the safe levels of lead, which, by the way, there is no safe level of lead. And then we're going to talk a little bit, a little, 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 little. We're going to talk a little bit about treatment. Now. As promised, I'm also going to tell a little bit of a story as well to help reel everybody in. So I hope you enjoy it. Lead is the 38th most abundant element in the Earth's crust and is essentially ubiquitous. On top of this, it's got a number of beneficial characteristics in industry, which has made it used broadly. But here's the problem. As we said earlier, it's got no known physiologic role in the human body. It causes significant toxicity, and any lead present in the human body represents contamination. This metal can readily bind to organic molecules like hydroxy, especially sulfhydryl and amine groups. It can screw up your enzymes, cellular receptors, structural proteins. It can affect the methylation of DNA and is probably carcinogenic. A number of organ systems are affected by lead, and that's what makes it kind of confusing because it can do so many different things. But it's a potent neurotoxin. It can hurt both the brain and peripheral nerves. It screws up the blood, in particular the heme synthesis pathways. It can be toxic to the kidneys, toxic to the cardiovascular system. One of the, the known effects of lead is that it can cause hypertension. Additionally... It can lead to reproductive problems and infertility, other endocrine disorders, 
skeletal toxicity. In fact, the bone is the main reservoir for lead. And literally, lead can get taken up by the bone and then leach out for decades. Along with the gastrointestinal tract. A lot of the classic acute lead toxicities present with somebody who's confused, altered, and has abdominal pain. Morbidity and mortality. So let's talk about how lead can kill you. At really, really high doses, and we're talking blood lead levels greater than 100 micrograms per deciliter, lead can get into the central nervous system, cause cerebral edema, which can lead to seizures, coma, and eventually death. But even at lower levels, lead can cause significant harm. And mostly we're talking loss of intelligence or IQ as the biggest morbidity factor. When you compare a lead level of 0 to 1 of 10 in a child that grows up, that can result in a difference in IQ of approximately 7.4 points. And then for each additional 10 uh, micrograms per deciliter blood lead level, you can have a decrease in IQ of 4.6 points. This is really, really significant. It's thought that 815 million children worldwide have blood lead levels greater than 5 micrograms per deciliter. And at least 500,000 children in the United States have that blood level lead level greater than 5 micrograms per deciliter. This is not good. As I've said in many podcasts, we don't need people to be any dumber than they already are. Every year in the world, it's estimated that 900,000 adults are killed as a result of lead poisoning. And most of those are going to be occupational exposures, things that are happening to them at work. As we said at the beginning, worldwide, lead may account for as much as 1% of the global burden of disease. So how does lead actually get into the body? Well, there's really three routes. You can ingest it or swallow it. And when you do so, it's thought that about 10 to 15% gets absorbed into your body. The best way to get as much lead into your body as possible is via inhalation though. And when lead gets aerosolized, about 30 to 40% of that lead that's breathed in will get absorbed into your body. But in children, I've seen quotes as high as 100% basically. So kids are gonna, gonna take in a lot more, probably both from the GI and from inhalation. Contact is a much lower absorption rate. About 0.5% can get absorbed through the skin, so not as big of an issue. Now, consider this. If someone has a nutrient deficiency, they are likely going to take up a lot more lead than someone that doesn't. And namely, we're talking about iron, calcium, zinc, and magnesium deficiency. And this is why when you combine malnutrition with lead exposure, you're going to have a big problem. So who then is at risk for lead toxicity? Well, kids are at by far the highest risk. And any kids living in uh, an impoverished situation, uh, any children that are living in older homes, particularly in those built before 1978, especially if there's old chip paint around, 
that's going to be a really, really high probability of lead poisoning. Lead pipes, along with lead solder from both the city and old houses, can also be an issue. We've all heard about the issue in Flint, Michigan, with lead leaching out of pipes from the city. That's just devastating and terrifying, and it's sad to think that people in the United States have to worry about their drinking water. But it's recommended that you turn that water on cold and let it run for, you know, 20, 30 seconds if it was on hot before, because cold water will leach less lead out of the water. If parents, let's say, are doing DIY remodeling of a house, this is going to up the risk. If uh, families like to go shooting, especially with lead bullets, if families like to make lead bullets or, say, work with stained glass or collect old lead artifacts, these can all increase the risk that kids might be exposed to lead. On top of this, in the home, you can even have lead sometimes contaminating some folk medicines. There's been a lot of case reports of, of certain Ayurvedic medicine preparations having lead in some instances. It can also be found in some cosmetics. People can have lead poison, obviously, from retained shrapnel from bullets, dust-covered clothing from work. Even the soil outside your house may have a particularly high lead level which could then create dust in your house or your kids could eat it or whatnot. Like we said, lead is ubiquitous in the Earth's crust. As far as adults go, the biggest risk factor is really work exposures. And there's a lot of different places where the risk of lead exposure is high in the occupational setting. The highest risks occur in lead smelters, construction workers, people who work with automotive radiators, Individuals who manage or work at firing ranges, battery manufacturers, anyone who's working with lead abatement from, say, older structures or older buildings, and metal workers. Medium exposure occurs in just about any fac factory workers, lead miners, glass blowers, plumbers, ship workers, wire and, wire and cable workers. And then you get a moderate risk of exposure when you do things like manufacture electronics, jewelry, you work with boats or automotive repair or anyone around exhaust that still uses uh, gasoline that still contains lead. So some tips on minimizing lead exposure in the home would be to, if you have old paint, get it tested. If it contains lead, remove it. Ideally, get out of the house while it's being removed and absolutely the children need to be out of the house for the entire process of removing the lead. Now, if you can't remove the lead paint, what you can do in the meantime is be meticulous about keeping everything clean. All the paint chips need to be gone. The dust in the house needs to be kept as, as minimum amount as possible. Also, not having a bunch of exposed soil outside can help with dust and lead particle removal as well. Try planting plants. They're great at keeping the soil in the ground and making your space beautiful. For work, there's a ton of things that are really important. For starters, employers should be monitoring the air in the workplace if there's any concern for lead. And it needs to be kept below 30 micrograms for every square meter of air. You're going to want to avoid eating, drinking, or smoking in the workplace. You're going to wear, want to wear protective job clothing. 
you're then going to want to take that off before you go home and shower and put on clean clothes. And you don't want to store your work clothes in the same locker as your clean home clothes. This is really important because the last thing workers want to do is bring home lead for their spouse and children. I mean, that's just not what you want to do is bring home these work problems to the home place. Washing hands frequently is also really important. And of course, if the lead levels are high, you need to just be really meticulous about keeping things clean and, and keeping dust at a minimum. You're going to want to wear a mask like a P100 if there's lead in the air. You're going to want to try to avoid aerosolizing lead whenever possible. So that might mean removing lead paint prior to torch cutting a, a steel beam. You're going to want to constantly evaluate workers for lead by screening their blood lead levels. But really the most important thing in the workplace regarding lead are engineering controls, namely ventilation. If the lead levels are too high in the air, you need to improve ventilation so that that stuff blows out. And really engineering controls are always the crux of any occupational, any home modification to help keep people safer. Story time! All right. Back in the Roman Empire, the aristocratic society used to drink a sweetener called Sapa. Or actually, they used to add the sweetener to their drinks. This is a grape syrup that was simmered in lead-containing vessels. Many historians believe that the extensive use of Sapa in the ruling classes of the Roman Empire serially reduce the IQ of these people, likely contributing to the fall of the Roman Empire. So basically, these Roman aristocrats were drinking lead, their levels were going too high, they were getting stupider, and this may have led or, or, or at least contributed to the downfall of Rome. I can't help but draw a comparison to our modern world today and how much pollution we're having and how that could be affecting our intelligence and causing problems in each and every one of us. But in contrary to that dark comment I just made, I want to talk about a little bit of a success story. Before 1976 and 1978, lead was routinely added to gasoline and household paint because it improved the properties of these substances. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least... Give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. Pew. Literally, this resulted in a lot more exposure to lead for everybody. I mean, our cars were literally burning off gas and then aerosolizing lead all around us and we were breathing it in. Our houses were covered in lead paint that was chipping that our children would then eat. Since the ban, over the last 35 years, 
the average blood lead level in the United States has serially decreased from 12.8 micrograms per deciliter to 0.82 micrograms per deciliter in individuals 1 to 74 years old. This likely resulted in an average increase in IQ between 7 and 12 points. Wow. If you don't think that civilizations can have huge success by getting rid of these dangers on a population level, you are crazy. And this just shows you another example of how important public health is and how important public policy can be to the health of a nation and a population. All right, let's go over some of the symptoms that can be caused by lead. At really high levels, like we said, you can get encephalopathy, basically. Brain swelling, coma, seizures, obtundation, and death. You can also get things like foot drop and wrist drop from a really profound peripheral neuropathy. You can get abdominal pain, which can be rather colicky. You can get fairly severe anemia and even uh, renal disease or uh, nephrotic or nephropathy. Um, at more moderate levels, you can have things like headache, memory loss, uh, decreased sexual function, peripheral neuropathy, a metallic taste, belly pain, a little bit milder anemia, muscle pains, weakness, joint pains. And then even at, at lower levels, like we're talking just above a lead level of 20, you can get things like fatigue, tiredness, being moody. Like in kids, for instance, they can have these really nonspecific symptoms. Oh, they just weren't acting like themselves. They were more tired. They weren't following any directions. They were having behavioral issues. It's pretty interesting to think how diverse of symptoms people can have and how high clinicians' index of suspicion needs to be in order to find this stuff. What I will say is that lead needs to start being on more of our differentials because lead poisoning happens. It still happens in the United States and it certainly happens abroad. And we need to be thinking about it. If you happen to get an x-ray, say on a kid for instance, of their joint, and you see what are called lead lines or a dense uh, metaphyseal plate on any of the joints, you should perk up and think about lead. If you get a belly x-ray and you see little pellets in there, or little chips, you need to be thinking about ingestion of lead paint chips. And then, you know, if it's an adult and you see foreign bodies in there, like bullets or shotgun shells or pieces of metal, you need to be thinking about lead toxicity as well. There are really two types of lead. I mean, a chemist would probably say there's tons of types of lead. But there's inorganic lead, and then there's organic lead. We used to see a lot more organic lead when we used to put it in fuel because that's what was present in there. And namely, alkyl leads like triethyl lead. There is a little bit difference in the pathophysiology of organic lead. For instance, it tends not to cause as many problems in the heme synthesis pathways and so less anemia. And it tends to cause encephalopathy and bad neurological symptoms at lower doses. 
But that's all I want to say about inorganic versus organic lead. A lot of metals have an inorganic and an organic state where the organic state, of course, is bound to organic molecules. And oftentimes that can cause unique properties. Screening for lead. So what is a safe lead level? That's a trick question. There is no safe lead level. What we have nowadays is an action level. And for kids, that action level is any blood lead level above 5. Now, for workers, things are a little different. As far as OSHA is concerned, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, you're supposed to notify the worker and get them a medical examination if their lead level is above 40. If they've got three lead levels above 50 or one above 60, you're supposed to take that worker off the job. That worker can then resume work once their blood lead level drops below 40. However, I believe and most people agree that these levels are too high. And what we've actually seen over the last like 50 years is the EPA drop the acceptable blood lead level from 60 micrograms per deciliter now down to 5 micrograms per deciliter for kids. So that number has just plummeted. What I'm telling my workers and my employers is that if they have a blood lead level above 20, they should probably come off the job site. That's what I would recommend. And really any blood lead level between 5 and 20 in a worker should trigger more aggressive engineering controls, personal protective equipment, more frequent testing to make sure that the level's coming down, because you really even want those adults to be less than that 5 micrograms per deciliter of lead. So for workers that are exposed to lead intermittently or you know, fairly regularly, but not high levels above the OSHA limits. I recommend screening once a year with uh, history, physical, and a blood lead level. You can also throw in some basic labs like a CBC, CMP as well. Of course, if they're elevated, you got to get more frequent tests. If they have higher exposures, or let's say they had an event where they got exposed to a higher amount at work, you need to test them uh, immediately after that exposure. In the past, it was fairly common to get a zinc protoporphyrin level as well. This tests for one of the precursors in the heme biosynthesis pathway. Essentially, lead can inhibit the enzymes that build the heme molecule, which causes buildup of some of the other molecules in the pathway. And since red blood cells live for about 120 days, this essentially gives you about four months of data over what the chronic exposure level may have been over that time. Now really you don't start to see effects until at least above a level of 20, if not above 30 or even 40. So a lot of, um, a lot of people are recommending against checking zinc protoporphyrin routinely. OSHA still does require it as part of some of their workups and stuff, and so you still will see it in occupational medicine, and we still do it uh, for clients sometimes, but uh, maybe not as important. And like we said, really, if you want to know what the burden of lead has been over a long time, you want to look at that bone. 
see how much it lead is in that bone because that is your big store that's what's going to leach out over time and that's going to tell you what the cumulative exposure is and what the big risk is hopefully in the future we'll have technologies available to us that allow us to measure uh, bone and the bone lead levels in the clinical setting for children the united states preventative services task force basically says that they have insufficient evidence to recommend either for or against screening However, this recommendation is discordant from both the Centers for Disease Control and the American Academy of Pediatrics. Basically, uh, their recommendation is that uh, every kid should be screened with a history, so you should look for those risk factors. Are you in an old home? Do you have, uh, are you living in a, in a poverty situation? And use that to decide whether or not to proceed with laboratory testing, usually starting with just a, just a drop of blood on a finger stick for a kid. But basically, we're recommended from these bodies to test any child that has newly moved from another country upon arrival to this country, any child who is on Medicaid, any other federal or state assistance program, or that lives below the poverty limit should be tested at one and then again at two years for blood lead. They should also, if or, or if they have not been tested and a kid presents between three and six years, you should test that child at that time. There are some state organizations that recommend starting testing even earlier, sometimes as early as six months. So basically, I would say at a minimum, every practitioner needs to be asking about risk factors for lead. And if risk factors come up, you really should think about screening. Because if you get a positive level, that could really affect that child's IQ, which is going to affect their in their earning abilities, their life um, for the rest of their life. And so really this is something that's important that you don't want to be missing as a clinician. Any children who do have blood lead levels greater than 5 micrograms per deciliter need to be looked into. Basically you're going to want to go on a witch hunt and try and figure out where this lead may be coming from. This is often going to involve getting a case manager involved because you're going to want to be going to the house looking for things like paint chips, looking for exposures from um, hobbies or other things like we talked about earlier in the podcast. But the first step is really just to get rid of any potential risk factors and then recheck periodically depending on how high the level is. Obviously if the level is very high you're going to check more frequently. Now if the child has a blood lead level above 45 micrograms per deciliter it's actually recommended that you start chelation therapy or chelation therapy. Not sure how to say it. Haven't been for years. But that therapy is going to be really important. Now, if you get more intermediate levels, like let's say the kid's got a blood lead level of 20, you're going to want to probably do some additional workup. You're going to probably want to get a full set of labs, CBC, CMP. You're going to want to think about doing x-rays to look at the kid's belly, make sure there's not paint chips in there, and uh, maybe evaluate even joints for joint lines and stuff like that too. But at that 45 level, you're going to want to think about chelation therapy. And chelation therapy is basically the use of molecules which can grab usually metals, kind of wrap around them, and make it so they're more easily excreted in the urine. So this is a way to grab onto these toxic lead particles in the blood and make it so they're peed out. And you can also imagine that the higher the level 
of lead in the blood, the more successful this is going to be. If you've got really low lead levels, it's not going to be as easy to get the levels down. But if the levels are really high and you give them chelation, you can imagine that's going to grab a lot of those extra particles and help you pee them out. Now this chelation is not without risk. It's also going to grab other important uh, nutrients that bodies need. Things like iron, magnesium, calcium. Remember, malnutrition is bad in the setting of lead toxicity. And what you want to do with these kids is also make sure that they've got plenty of nutrition on board. You're going to want to potentially even supplement things like iron, magnesium, calcium, etc. Because having those levels low will increase their absorption of lead and they're also going to lose some along with chelation. So the main chelation therapy medicines used in lead poisoning are succimer, which is a medicine which can be taken orally. This is a particularly good one for lower lead levels and particularly those that are asymptomatic but you just want to get the level down. In kids, this is recommended for asymptomatic lead poisoning with blood levels between 45 and 69. The other two chelators are either given intramuscularly which uh, is dimercaptol, that is a, or dimercaprol. That is a medicine which is given intramuscularly. And then another one given intravenously is calcium disodium EDTA. And EDTA is a really common chelator. You'll see that come up a lot. And that's given IV. And so at those higher or symptomatic levels, it's, all, it's really recommended that you get both dimercaptol injections and calcium disodium EDTA. And that's something that's going to be done in a hospital, as opposed to those lower levels where you could use oral medicines and potentially try and get that level down outside of the hospital. If a kid or an adult comes in with a more acute toxicity, it's going to be a kind of an issue because they're going to have these vague symptoms that could be a lot of different things and you're not going to get a blood lead level back for probably a couple days at the fastest. So if your suspicion is really high, let's say a kid comes in, he's got a lot of mouthing behavior, you get an x-ray, there's like what looks like could be lead in his belly and he's acting weird, you're going to want to go ahead and start chelation therapy even before you get that lead level back. Same thing with an adult. Let's say somebody's at work, they were doing torch cutting, they didn't realize there was lead paint on something, they aerosolized a bunch of lead, uh, they were wearing their mask kind of sloppily and now they're acting all funky and crazy and not making sense and they're they're moaning and their belly's hurting, you're going to want to start that therapy long before you get that lead level back. Remember, when you collect that blood lead level, use that green top tube. Really important, that's the, the tube for those heavy metals. Another thing which can be considered if you think you're dealing with an, a recent oral injection is whole bowel irrigation. So you can give a whole bunch of polyethylene glycol and try and blow that colon out. For adults, the chelation agents are going to be exactly the same, but the levels which you take action at are going to be higher. So for asymptomatic adults with lead levels less than 70, you're not going to do any directed treatments. You're just going to try and remove the exposure, and that's the crux. If their levels are mild in between 70 and 100, you're going to use succimer. 
and if they're above 100 or if they're having serious symptoms, you're going to again use that combination of dimercaprol, which is given intramuscularly, and calcium disodium EDTA. I'm not going over the exact dose regimens. Please call your toxicologist if you have to deal with this and you're not familiar with it um, because there's, uh, there's some nuances and uh, uh, it's important to get this right and get those lead levels down. Oftentimes, depending on the severity and blood lead level, you may end up giving serial treatments of chelation. Usually, these are given over like a five-day course, and so you might give a course of it, retest. Two days later, you might start and do another five-day course. And for really severe cases, you might wait another five to seven days and then start an additional course. And so this may be something that has to go on for a long time in order to get these levels down. It's 2021, and the pregnancy apocalypse, or rather baby apocalypse, is here. So what about pregnant women? What about breastfeeding? Well, this is kind of a gray area, but in general, you're going to want to start collation at that same level for other adults, greater than 70 micrograms per deciliter. But you're going to want to be more cautious than these people. I wouldn't accept any lead level above 5 in a pregnant woman. I would be really aggressive about removing sources. This is something that can cross the placenta and get into baby and cause harm. As far as breastfeeding goes, you're going to want to encourage that mom to breastfeed if her level is below 40. If it's above 40, um, a lot of people do recommend just keeping pumping and wasting that milk until levels drop below 40 and then resuming breastfeeding. I think this is a pretty gray area. Lead definitely is excreted somewhat in the breast milk, but um, maybe not like crazy. So I don't know. This will probably be a moving target as we learn more in the future pregnant. Women, of course, are low on iron anyway. They develop pica and they want to chew and geophagia and they're eating dirt and they're chewing on ice, etc. This can be a problem. And there's even been case reports about like women and kids who have low iron getting this like addiction to lead paint chips and just loving to eat them, loving the taste. And so pica is another thing to really think about with lead poisoning. If you see this in an individual, you want to be thinking about lead. You may want to test them. Finally, another term for lead poisoning is plumism. And so if you hear the term plumism, that is basically synonymous with lead poisoning. All right, that is lead. Holy cow, that was a lot of information, but yet there is still so much more to say about lead. Remember that this is a huge problem, possibly as much as 1% of the global burden of disease, with almost a billion kids that may have a blood lead level above 5. We are causing the, a huge potential loss in IQ points on a global scale, and we need to keep getting on top of this problem. Some take-home points about lead are... It's everywhere in the Earth's crust, and children and occupational workers are at highest risk for exposure. The crux of the diagnosis is thinking about it. Once you think it's likely or probable, you need to test for lead, and if it's elevated, the mainstay of treatment is removing the lead exposure. When levels start to get really high, that's when you start to think about other stuff like chelation therapy. In general, the level of lead that's acceptable 
just keeps going down and down over time and there is currently no safe limit for blood lead levels there's only an action level and that is five micrograms per deciliter thank you so much for listening to the full scope podcast and investing in your health I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com, our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now today become the best possible individual you can be thanks bye-bye